Welcome back to GI Pearls, the gastroenterology and hepatology literature review podcast where I read the journal so you don't have to. This is episode 46 for the month of December 2020. Hard to believe 2020. The terrible year is almost over. By the way, GI Pearls has reached a milestone 60,000 downloads, so that's great. Keep spreading the word to your friends and colleagues. Have them listen to the podcast and don't forget to leave a review on iTunes. It really helps. Follow me on Twitter, by the way, at GI underscore Pearls. And if you have any articles you want to send my way, send them to info at GIPearls.com. Thanks to all of you who have done so already. So let's crack open those journals, shall we? Here's a nice and simple idea. ERCP is generally thought to be a high-risk procedure. No surprise there. And as such, we do our best to take care of the patient, watching out for any complications. But when is the best time to call the patient and find out if they have any complications? Next day, two days later, a month later? This paper by Monique Barakat and Subhas Banerjee from Stanford, published in GIE, looked at this very question. They called all the patients that they did ERCPs on at day 1, day 7, day 14, and a month later. Overall, the complication rate was about 2%. So on day 7, they caught much more pancreatitis, 2% versus 0.5% compared to day 1. Some more bleeding was also found, and a few more infections. And at 2 weeks and 1 month, basically they had diminishing returns. It wasn't very helpful. I guess what this paper teaches us is if you really want to know your complication rate, maybe don't call the next day, but wait a day or two really to get good data on how you're doing. In this study, three times as many adverse events were caught on day seven compared to day one. An interesting side note of the paper, and I kind of know this to be true in my institution, is that non-doc staff initiated calls don't get many returns. About 19% of patients are actually reached by the staff. But here the docs called themselves and reached 93% of the patients. That's incredible. This is because, the, and the authors freely admit this, it's all about priming. If you tell the patients to expect a call from you, they're much more likely to pick up the phone. Priming works and cold calling is not as effective. Another good tidbit in this paper, if your institution is tracking your post-sphincterotomy bleeding, it probably does it on immediate follow-up. So this grossly underestimates true rates of post-sphincterotomy bleeding. Overall, very cool study, which exposes a lot of our blind spots in GI, and not just for ERCPs, but many complex procedures that we do. We are probably not as good as we think we are in terms of complications. This next study is titled Regular Use of Protein Pump Inhibitors and Risk of Type 2 Diabetes, Results of Three Prospective Cohort Studies, was published in GUT. And of course, the conclusion of this study is don't use PPIs inappropriately, but I don't think we needed this study to tell us that. I know that we are all on the bandwagon of deprescribing or dose-reducing PPIs because we are afraid of all sorts of things. But remember, we will cause a great deal of suffering if we actually stop using PPIs altogether. Bleeds aside, do you know what the number needed to treat for PPIs for simple GERD is? It's two. Yes, two. Also, the authors propose a plausible mechanism of how PPIs could cause diabetes. Could you guess what it would be? Oh yes, of course, it's the microbiome. It may be plausible, but there are much more plausible mechanisms out there, I think. And every GI doc knows about this, even before the so-called invention of microbiome, or perhaps before the rediscovery of the microbiome, I guess. And that mechanism is that GERD actually limits food intake for patients who have symptoms of GERD. And many patients report gaining weight while on PPIs, or at least because they're eating more. So this is a more likely reason why PPI could potentially induce diabetes, if at all. 
And this is an observational study, and as such cannot establish causality, by the way. But do you know what's better than an observational study? I piggyback on a randomized clinical trial. And guess what? That's been done already. And I'll put a link to that study in the show notes. This was a trial from 2019 published in Gastro, which looked at patients on PPIs while receiving rivaroxaban or aspirin. And one thing they looked at was development of diabetes. In this study, and it was actually referenced in this gut paper, they claimed that odds ratio was 1.15, but this was clearly not significant, meaning that if you put thousands of patients on PPI in a randomized trial, they are not more likely to develop diabetes. And this is a quote from the paper, patients with uncomplicated acid peptic disease should be maintained on the lowest level of acid suppression to provide satisfactory symptom control. In many patients, disease can be controlled with histamine 2 blockers or lifestyle modification avoiding PPIs altogether. Yes, we know this. Whether there is a link to diabetes or not, doesn't matter. This still should be true. And unfortunately, with the headline like regular use of PPIs causes diabetes, this is how at least the media will interpret the study. And more importantly, members of the medical community will interpret this as such as well. More often than not, GI docs end up seeing patients in their clinic who often wait months for an appointment just to have the patient with severe GERD go on a PPI. So overall, I think these type of studies, while important, actually cause more harm than good to patients. Also, now that we have a randomized trial data, do we really need more data on link between diabetes and PPIs? I say not. I don't think this is the last PPI paper, and I don't think anyone listening to my podcasts thinks that either. Oh, the power of large databases. This next study from Denmark looked at the outcomes of undiagnosed celiac disease, and this was published in American Journal of Gastroenterology. What they did was look at records of thousands of patients looking at celiac seropositivity over 40 years. What was interesting is that they found 1% of patients with undiagnosed celiac disease, and there was no statistical increase of this over time, or a decrease for that matter. So then they looked at what happens with these patients. Undiagnosed celiac disease was associated with increased risk of cardiovascular disease, and this would suggest that untreated celiac disease has serious long-term health consequences. But when it came to mortality, there were no statistically significant associations with undiagnosed celiac disease with neither cancer mortality nor cardiovascular mortality. My question was, of course, regarding confounding. There must be reasons why people did not get a diagnosis of celiac disease. Were there issues with follow-up? Were there issues with adherence? Were these patients less likely to receive screening for other diseases such as diabetes, hypertension, etc.? Were these patients different somehow versus those who were diagnosed with celiac disease? In fact, I think this is the case. The authors hint at this in the discussion. Quote, It is important to note that some of the associations became statistically non-significant when additionally adjusted for BMI, smoking, alcohol, and education, suggesting that confounding by risk factors could affect our results. It is still interesting that 1% of Danish population was walking around with serological evidence of celiac, but didn't know it. It's also interesting that if you account for everything, apparently having celiac disease probably won't kill you by itself. I'm sure it's a risk factor for other diseases, but doesn't appear to be a very large risk factor. Let's switch gears and talk about IBD for a minute. Ileoanal pouch complications are very common, including things like pouchitis, cophitis, and fistulas. About half the patients will end up with issues one theory has it, what I talked about on the last episode, is hypoxia. If you remember, gastritis and ulcers were found in high-altitude sickness patients. Maybe hypoxia is driving pouch-related complications. 
so it would stand to reason that fixing hypoxia would reduce issues. This paper from Cleveland Clinic that was published in Clinical Gastroenterology took about 20 patients with pouchitis or fistulas and stuck them in a hyperbaric chamber full of oxygen. Then they calculated some pouchitis disease activity index and did endoscopy as well and looked for healing of fistulas and pouchitis. So what happened? Keep in mind that these were patients with quite extensive pouchitis who are pretty much antibiotic dependent at this point. So endoscopic scores and symptom scores were all down. And for patients with fistulas, 78% of them have healed. So that's amazing and very encouraging for a problem that's very hard to treat. Problem with this is that insurance doesn't cover it yet. It is off label and you have to write all sorts of fancy letters to get this covered. But this does look like a very good and safe options for patients who have really nothing else to offer. I'm not sure how often you have to go and get this hyperbaric oxygen therapy to maintain remission and also how durable the response is over time. So maybe another study is in the works. There's a variety of protocols for endoscopic surveillance and diagnosis of ulcerative colitis when it comes to the number of biopsies one needs to take. Ultimately, when you see, say, Mayo 2 colitis throughout the colon, taking biopsies every 10 centimeters seems like overkill. Because remember, that protocol was really developed to look for dysplasia, not for inflammation. So every 10 centimeters may be too much, especially if inflammation is more or less uniform. Bill Sanborn Group from UCSD published a paper in the Elementary Pharmacology and Therapeutics looking at the question as to what's the optimum number of biopsies needed to look for histological inflammation in ulcerative colitis. There's a very good reason they're trying to answer this question. We really don't have a standard when it comes to clinical trials looking for endoscopic remission. And having one, I think, would be more helpful as we don't end up comparing apples to oranges, as we often do. They looked at over 40-plus patient samples and calculated scores to see how much agreement there was between samples in terms of severity of inflammation. The quick answer here is that you need a minimum of two biopsies and, conservatively, three biopsies required for each colonic segment which is probably what most people are doing anyway. So it's good to hear. This next paper was sent to me by Noam Peleg, who is the first author, and this was published in Endoscopy. And it's an interesting one. The title is Neutrophil to Lymphocyte Ratio and the Risk of Neoplastic Progression in Patients with Barrett's Esophagus. So what they did here is they looked at the ratio of lymphocytes and neutrophils. And this is a useful ratio when looking at esophageal carcinoma as a predictor of poor prognosis. And how useful is this ratio when looking at plain old Barrett's with no dysplasia as a predictor of who progresses? It was a retrospective analysis of known Barrett samples over 300 patients, with 13 patients progressing to neoplasia in almost four years, which adds up to be about 1% per year. And they used a cutoff of a ratio of 2.4 to see what pops up and how useful this ratio would be. Conclusion here is that this NLR predicts histologic progression in patients with Barrett's, and it may be utilized uh, when looking at surveillance strategies. Obviously, this needs to be verified in other patient populations and other centers to make sure that this actually is the case. And it looks like this neutrophil to lymphocyte ratio actually looks for patients who have more inflammation at baseline, and this could be useful. One thing I like about this is that it does not require any fancy new equipment or expensive tests, and it's something that current pathologists can do for you at minimal additional expense despite better tools that we have for surveillance of Barrett's, including narrowband imaging and things like that, we haven't been really better at picking up patients who progress to esophageal cancer. So something like this potentially could be an answer for this. 
SBP, spontaneous bacterial peritonitis, is a horrible thing to happen with somebody with ascites. We have gotten a little better at picking it up, treating it, and preventing it. Mortality that used to be very, very high for this, now it's just high. We're learning more about how to manage it, and this next study gives us some more ammunition against this terrible thing. Published in CGH, this is a study of looking at empirical treatment with carbapenems versus third-generation cephalosporins for treatment of SBP, and it comes to us from Korea. They looked and compared about 100 patients who got carbapenem versus 600 or so who got third-generation cephalosporins. And according to this study, for patients who had their first SBP presentation, I quote, Empirical treatment with carbapenem does not reduce in-hospital mortality compared to treatment with third-generation cephalosporins. However, among critically ill patients, empirical treatment with carbapenem was significantly associated with lower in-hospital mortality than third-generation cephalosporins. I think this is what most people are doing already, third-generation cephalosporins for stable patients, and if patient is unstable, you start thinking deeper, and maybe give them a carbapenem. And this paper supports this approach. But this was a retrospective study, so who knows what else went into decision giving these patients carbapenem when they were critically ill. It would be helpful if we had a prospective study on this. Combination of anti-TNF and immunomodulators is somewhat of a dogma these days for treatment of Crohn's disease in adults. Main advantage of adding immunomodulators like thiopurines is potential protection that is offered against anti-TNFs failing later on due to host anti-drug antibodies forming and your drug levels dropping. Plenty of studies to show this in adults, again, assumption being that there is less anti-drug antibodies. But there are meta-analyses out there showing that there may be not as much benefit for combo treatment as we believe. Here's another study, this time done in children with Crohn's disease, a post hoc analysis of a randomized trial, and the trial was looking at level-based optimization of treatment with adalimumab. Now, post hoc analyses, of course, are dangerous, since sometimes we'll look at things we're not supposed to look at. So keep this in mind. This study reanalyzed data from 78 patients, average age around 14 years old, about half of whom received combo therapy. And at least in this analysis, there was no additional benefit of adding an immunomodulator to adalimumab. Now, keep in mind that combo therapy studies that showed efficacy were almost always done with infliximab, and here we're talking about adalimumab. So this may be a difference, of course, and this study was done in kids, not adults, but nonetheless. I love the names of trials in IBD, by the way. PANTS trials, the poetic trials, and this was a post hoc analysis of the IMAGINE trial. Well, imagine that. About a year ago, specifically episode 36, I've described a study of a patient with fatty liver disease caused by high alcohol-producing Klebsiella pneumonia species. So it's time to revisit this interesting but rare syndrome called fermentation syndrome, where people are drunk without drinking any alcohol. This was a case report published in the Annals of Internal Medicine, and report is from Ghent, Belgium. It is a case of a 47-year-old man with multiple episodes of feeling drunk while not drinking. This started after he was treated with several courses of Augmentin for an upper respiratory tract infection, by the way. After this, he had multiple episodes of recorded elevated blood alcohol level without drinking. He was even stopped while driving and lost his driving license, failing a breathalyzer test. By the way, this patient had a gastric bypass years ago. This could be important. For some reason, the stool cultures were done and it grew Candida glabrata, which was implicated in other cases of gut fermentation syndrome. Question I have for listeners, and this is out of ignorance, how often do you do stool cultures for anything other than the common pathogens? I've never sent a culture for Candida glabrata. 
do you send stool studies for anything else? Something weird like this? Back to our drunk man. So the docs tried treating him with courses of fluconazole, and that didn't do much. Then they reached out for the big gun and treated him with amphotericin B for several weeks. That didn't work either. A year later, they kind of were running out of ideas and decided to do a fecal transplant. And guess what? That worked. Patient was symptom-free for at least 34 months following the FMT. He had no ethanol in his system. And his liver tests, by the way, returned to normal. He even got his license back. So there you go. Another use for FMT. The next study is from the Annals of Emergency Medicine, and it's a quick one. POCUS, the point-of-care ultrasound, is sweeping the nation, and for good reason. You can diagnose many things on the fly with it. Turns out diverticulitis is one of those things. This study evaluated the use of ultrasound at bedside to see if diverticulitis could be picked up. 400 or so patients were studied with symptoms of diverticulitis. Ultrasound was done by an ultrasound fellow, by the way, or a trained ED doc. And this ultrasound had 92% sensitivity and 97% specificity for finding of diverticulitis, which, by the way, would look like bowel wall edema surrounding a diverticula, enhancing percolonic fat, and tenderness to palpation with the ultrasound probe. It was, of course, compared to a CT scan for this study. This tool would be as good as the person holding the ultrasound probe, of course, but nonetheless, this could result in quicker diagnosis and discharge of patients with uncomplicated diverticulitis. I'm not sure if POCUS really is going to take off in the United States with the current system we have where we bill for many things that we do, unless somehow the hospital figures out the way to get reimbursed for it. But I am being cynical, of course, since if we do adopt it, patient will be the winner. So if you are an ED doc that happens to listen to this podcast and thinking for another use for your bedside ultrasound, this could be it. And for the GI docs, if your ED colleagues call you with a diagnosis of diverticulitis, don't be surprised if there's no report of a CT scan in the chart. This could have been diagnosed through an ultrasound at bedside. The next paper comes from GIE, and Joe Anderson and I wrote an editorial about this paper, so it would be foolish for me not to include it here. The title is Long-Term Outcomes and Natural Disease Course of Serrated Polyposis Syndrome Over 10 Years of Prospective Follow-Up in a Specialized Center. As you might have guessed, serrated polyposis syndrome is one of my favorite topics. For those of you who are not aware, the serrated polyposis syndrome is now defined as either over five serrated polyps proximal to the rectum, all being at least five millimeters in size, at least two of which are 10 millimeter in size. So that's one criteria. The other criteria being 20 serrated polyps anywhere with at least five proximal to the rectum. And these criteria by the WHO were just updated last year. And if either criteria is met, and remember this is a cumulative diagnosis, which means that it could take one, two, three colonoscopies to get there. But once you get there, you need to do colonoscopies every one to two years. This paper from Holland was a post hoc analysis of their SPS cohort, looking at over 140 patients over 10 years. So what happens to these patients who are under surveillance? They did colonoscopies here every one to two years, as they should. On average, this resulted in about six colonoscopies over 10 years. What's important to note is that there was no overall trend in terms of how many polyps were found, no upward or downward trend. And this is very important. It is likely that these patients will need lifelong surveillance. That's what it means. Since even after 10 years, polyps are still growing. Also, if you're on surveillance program, chances of colon cancer are also very low. Only one patient was actually diagnosed with cancer in the entire 140 patient cohort. 
Recently, another multi-center data of SPS surveillance showed that a three-year cumulative incidence of colorectal cancer was actually about 3.1%. So the data from this current study is very encouraging, meaning that if you are under surveillance, chances of you getting colon cancer go down. And I will quote myself here, the more pressing challenge for endoscopists may lie in the domain of underdiagnosis of SPS. Although we are aware of this entity, SPS requires more than the usual effort to arrive at the correct diagnosis, especially if previous endoscopy and pathology records are not available. However, the data reported by this current study certainly allow for optimism because CRC risk is low when the SPS diagnosis is made and surveillance is initiated after an initial intense polyp clearance phase. And this last point is also important, by the way, in diagnosis and surveillance of serrated polyposis syndrome, meaning that if you diagnose somebody with SPS, don't forget to clear out all their polyps before you put them on surveillance program. All right, that's it. Thanks again for listening to GI Pearls, the gastroenterology and hepatology literature review podcast. Please remember that this is an independent podcast, so I don't make any money doing this. So if you want to help, please write a review on iTunes and help others discover the podcast. If you have articles you want to send in, send them to info at gipearls.com. If you have any comments or suggestions, send those as well. Thanks again, and we'll talk again in 2021. Bye-bye.